Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported. That means we truly depend on you in order to bring this resource to you. If you don't already support us financially, you could do so. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. You'll see our three friendly yellow buttons there. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. Click on one of them and fill that out. If you'd like to support us the traditional way, you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. It's time for another edition of Fighting for the Faith. Friday, May 24th, 2019. Ooh, getting ready for the three-day weekend here. And the running of the Indianapolis 500. Ha, ha, ha. <laughs> yeah, that gives you an idea of my intentions for the week. Thank you for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, and help you to slow down, stop, open up your Bible, and compare. Compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up God's Word to compare and contrast what the most popular pastors, preachers, teachers, conference speakers, self-proclaimed prophets, prophetesses, (gasps) self-appointed apostles and apostolates, and those generally put forward by the evangelical industrial complex as those whom we need to be listening to, whose books apparently we need to be buying, and whose small group curricula we should be studying instead of the Word of God. Yeah, weird how that works. Over and again, we demonstrate that the steady diet of doctrine that's put forward for consumption by the average evangelical is far from biblical, far from what God's Word says, and it's just really kind of a hot mess of just nonsense out there. And we're trying to warn you, open up your Bible, read this thing. Don't ever give me... The benefit of the doubt, because I don't need that, what you need to do is listen with an open Bible, not an open mind, and you will see for yourself that uh, these people are not rightly handling biblical texts, they are not teaching sound, historic, biblical Christianity and doctrine, and uh, they're generally scratching itching ears and making a mess of everything is a good way of putting it. Now, over and again, one of the questions I receive is, you know, well, you, you always seem to be tearing everybody down. Is there anybody out there that, that, that teaches that, you know, that you could point to that you say you preach good sermons? The answer is yes. In, on the program here, historically, we've provided a lot of good examples of good preaching. Now, today what we're going to do, uh, uh, on Friday in the past, I have made it a, uh, a you know, a, a tradition Although, with the new format, you know, traditions are kind of being broken all over the place. But today we'll follow some of our older, uh, you know, format in this sense, that we're going to end the week off with two 
what I would consider to be good sermons. Now, one of them is my own, so you know you have to take me saying it's good with a grain of salt. Uh, but the idea here is is that I try to demonstrate that I practice what I preach, and I rightly handle biblical texts, rightly bring in. Uh, you know, you know, examples from history and theology, and in you know, and church, you know, archaeology and things like that, and and rightly divide law and gospel, and proclaim repentance and the forgiveness of sins. But what we're going to do today is uh, you know, two sermons: one from my good friend Pastor Brian Wolfmuller, of currently of Hope Lutheran Church in Aurora, Colorado. I've, I understand he's taken a call to uh, serve a different congregation, I believe, in Texas. So, uh, you know, keep that in mind. He'll, he will be moving venues. Uh, but uh, we're going to be listening to the sermon he preached at the end of uh, April on the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. And I will actually read out the text because in a uh, Lutheran service, uh, the texts are all read prior to uh, the sermon as part of the service itself. Uh, there's uh, generally three texts, and that would be, uh, your, you know, an Old Testament text, an epistle text, and the gospel text, and he'll be preaching on the gospel. And then I will be uh, pre- presenting you a sermon uh, on uh, on the gospel of John chapter 5, verses 1 to 9, um, and uh, talking about the topic of idolatry, idolatry of all things. So that will be today's episode of Fighting for the Faith. Now, the idea here is, as you're listening to these sermons, they're, they're held up for you as one type of sermon that would fit within an, you know, an exemplary example of rightly handling a biblical text, rightly dividing law and gospel, and then preaching Christ properly and Him crucified uh, for the forgiveness of our sins, and and that and that's really the the gist of what goes on in these sermons. So, uh, to follow fighting for the faith tradition, let me do this right though, and then we'll dive into it. Bum bum bum, bum bum bum. The good, the bad, the ugly. We review it all here at Fighting for the Faith. We're an equal opportunity sermon reviewing service. Today's sermons, we got two of them. Uh, uh, First one comes to us via Hope Lutheran Church, Aurora, Colorado. Uh, Presiding in this sermon is uh, Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. And the name of the sermon is Risen and Forgiven, and it's on the Gospel of John, chapter 20, verses 19 through 31. Second sermon comes to us via Kongsvinger Lutheran Church in Oslo, Minnesota. And it's uh, from Pastor Chris Roseboro. The name of the sermon is From Which God Do You Expect Good? From Which God Do You Expect Good? And it's on the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 1 through 9. Now let me go ahead and back off on the music, and before we get into Pastor Wolfmuller's sermon, let me read out the gospel text that forms the basis of his sermon, and here it is. The Gospel of John, chapter 20, starting at verse 19, and it reads, On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. 
When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. Now, Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands, and put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is the gospel text that forms the basis of our first sermon today, Risen and Forgiven. Here is Pastor Brian Wolfmuller. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. In the name of Jesus, amen. Dear saints, on the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors were locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews. The disciples of Jesus are afraid. They're locked in the upper room, trying to stay silent so that they wouldn't be found. And they, it turns out, were rightly afraid. They were thinking that the way it went with Jesus was also the way it would go with them. That their own lives are at stake. That Jesus, who was arrested and tortured and tried and crucified, was only the first. And they saw it happen. And they thought that it would happen to them also. And it turns out they were right. We've all, I think, seen movies or read stories where a person is hiding. They've, they've hidden themselves. They've locked themselves in a house because there's someone who's looking for them, who's hunting them down and wants to, to kill them or destroy them or something like this. Now, that is how it is with these disciples. They're they're hunkered down and they're hiding because they are afraid. And I want, I, I, just, I want you to have that sense of fear, to, to know what the situation is, because Jesus is going to enter into this room and he's going to change everything. He's going to take away that fear. He's going to set them free so that they'll leave the room. But what does he do to do it? Now, that's what we're going to talk about. But it turns out, and this is the thing that's maybe most intriguing to me about this as we think about it today, that the thing that Jesus doesn't change is the danger that they would face when they would leave the room. They were, they were afraid of the Jews because they were afraid that the Jews would arrest them and hand them over to the Romans to be crucified like Jesus. And it turns out that that's just exactly what happened. We hear about it in... For, we start in the book of Acts where James the son of Zebedee, the, James the Greater, brother of John, is arrested by Herod with Peter. And even though Peter escapes prison, that James becomes the first apostle to be martyred. James arrests him and then puts him to death. 
Peter, maybe, mm, how many years later are we? 33 years later, Peter is crucified upside down in Rome by Caesar, by Nero. Andrew, the apostle Andrew, after traveling around and preaching in what was the, now we call the Soviet Union and then coming down to Asia Minor, was also crucified by the Romans on a cross that was like an X. So St. Andrew's cross is the X-shaped cross. Thomas, who preached in Syria, then traveled east to India, was killed by four soldiers who were ordered to run their spears through him at the same time. Philip preached in North Africa and then Asia Minor. He preached such that a Roman proconsul became a Christian, and so this proconsul had Philip arrested and tortured and put to death. Tradition says that he was stoned before he was crucified. Matthew preached in Persia, in Egypt, and in Ethiopia, where at last the king commanded him to be killed, and he was by a soldier running a spear through him. Bartholomew, named Nathaniel also, preached all over the place. Tradition says that he went with India, he went with Thomas to India, and he preached in Ethiopia, he preached in southern Arabia, and then he ended up in Armenia, where he was skinned to death before he was beheaded. Carrie always tells me, do you have to tell these stories at the dinner table? <laughs> but there's a reason we're going through this list here. James, the other apostle, James, son of Alphaeus, also known as James the Less, went and preached in Syria, who was first stoned to death and then killed by being hit over the head with a club. Simon, the zealot, preached in Persia and was killed there after refusing to preach or to after refusing to sacrifice to the sun god that the people worshipped. Thaddeus, the apostle, preached in Syria and was martyred there. And that leaves only one left, John, who was the only apostle who wasn't martyred, but was exiled while he was on Patmos. And, and this is not only these apostles, but to all, I mean, Paul, remember, was beheaded by Nero in Rome, and all of the others were giving up their life all the time. Now, now, so, now here's the point. They, they were in the upper room on the night of the resurrection of Jesus because they were worried that these things might happen to them. And they were right. These things were going to happen to them. They were going to be killed because they were the followers of Jesus. But, but this night, before Jesus appears to them, they're afraid of these things and they're locked up behind the door. But after Jesus comes to them, he doesn't take away the thing that they're afraid of, but he gives them a reason to actually leave the room. And what is that? We think that if they're in the room because they're afraid of what's going to happen, that they would only leave the room if you took away the cause of the fear or if you gave them the promise of power to overcome the things that they were afraid of or if you promised maybe to protect them from the threat and said that it wouldn't happen. But Jesus doesn't do any of those things. Imagine, just I mean, to kind of get there, imagine that there was hungry mountain lions waiting at all the exits of the church. You're not going to leave. Pastor, we don't mind if you preach another sermon. <laughs> You're not going to leave until the mountain lion leaves or until you're equipped with some sort of weapon to fight the mountain lion, or perhaps if Jesus came and gave you the promise that you could go outside 
and the lions wouldn't hurt you. That he'd shut their mouths like he did for Daniel in the lion's den. But this is not what happens. Jesus doesn't give any of these promises. Jesus does not come to the apostles with the promise of victory and, and say, I've taken care of the Jews, I've taken care of the Romans, you don't have anything to worry about, you won't be put to death. He doesn't do that. Jesus does not come to them with the promise of power and say, I'm going to give you supernatural strength so that you'll be kept safe from all of these things that threaten to torture you and to put you to death. He doesn't do that. Jesus does not come with the promise of protection and say, I'm going to protect you so that you don't die. He doesn't do that. None of these things. But still, Jesus comes and does something and gives them something which sets them free and gives them the courage to leave the upper room. Now, what is it? I think we can think about it in these two things. That Jesus gives them two things. He gives them peace and he gives them a purpose. First, peace. It says it like this. Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side, and the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you. He's going to say it again the next week when Thomas is back. Peace be with you. Jesus comes to them and gives them peace, and he gives them a very specific peace. He gives them the peace that is found in his wounds. Peace be with you. And he shows them his hands and his side. That's where the nails went through and held him to the cross and where the spear pierced his side. He does this so that they would know that this truly is Jesus. But more than that, he, he shows them his hands and his side because he wants to know that this resurrected body is the same body that was nailed to the cross, the same body that spilt so much holy, precious blood, that this body, this man standing in front of them, had won for them peace. His cross is our peace. His cross is your peace. His wounds have won peace between you and God. So the disciples would say to Jesus, Jesus, we're afraid. We're here. We're locked in the room. We're afraid of the Jews. We're afraid of being arrested. We're afraid of being beat to a pulp like you are. We're afraid of the pain. We're afraid of the shame. We're afraid of the death. And Jesus' answer is, to them and to you, his answer is his hands and his side. His answer is his wounds. Look, he says, I died for you. Your sins are forgiven. I've overcome death and the grave for you, all for you, and it's for us too. When our courage falters, and when we are afraid, when we're cowering instead of courageous, when we get a, a fear of, of, of acting or doing or saying or speaking or living or dying, when we are afraid... Jesus comes to us and we get a glimpse of his wounds in the preaching of the gospel and we know in the wounds that which is most important to know in this life and that is that God is not mad at us. Our sins are forgiven. There is no judgment for you, no condemnation for those who are in Jesus Christ. On the other side of death for us is the smiling face of God 
for us to live is Christ. To die is gain. And this, the wounds of Jesus, gives to the disciples and it gives to us courage. We've been talking a lot, I mean, not just the last couple of weeks, but I, I, I think even for the last couple of months, we've been talking quite a bit about fear and the fear of God versus the fear of death and all these other things. And that's the negative way to talk about it. We have in the commandment that we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things so that we want to have a fear for God. And this, this mitigates our fear for all the other things that could go wrong. But there's a positive way to approach the same topic. The, to talk of fear is the negative, but the positive way is to think of it in terms of courage. To, that, that the Holy Spirit wants to give to us in the wounds and the words of Jesus, He wants to give to us courage. That we should be courageous. Willing to face death. Willing to face whatever would come our way. Suffering and tragedy and torture and torment and all these sorts of things. Willing to face whatever it is. Because God is on our side. We, we have courage to, to live. We have courage to die. We have courage to stand before the Lord on the judgment day because we know this. We are absolutely sure of this. That our sins are forgiven. And we need this courage to face the times that we live in. But it's not just, and, and I want to go just a step further, it's not just courage that the Lord is giving to us, but he also gives to us a purpose. Jesus stands, to, stands there before them in the upper room and he says, peace to you, and he shows them his wounds and he shows them the scars in his hands and his side, and then he gives them a purpose, a reason for living. A reason to leave the room. Now, this is a big thing, this question of purpose. It's a big question for all of us, and it's, it's, it's connected for us to the question of meaning. What's the meaning of life, and what's the purpose of life? And specifically, each one of us is asking, what's the purpose of my own life? And we, and we know, as we ask that question, that there's a great danger in purposelessness and having no purpose at all. And this is especially true for the young and for the old. You know, for the young people, there's this temptation that, 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 that it seems like there's no purpose in life. And life is just this kind of blah. And this is dangerous. I mean, it's the path to despair. It's, it's, I mean, it's, a, it's a, a deadly thing to have no sense of purpose in life. And if you're old, the same temptation comes back to you. You start to say, you start to ask questions, what, what good am I? Why am I even still alive? What's the purpose of all this? Especially when you get sick and you're bedridden or you're, now it's time to, now it's time to go and die. And the, this question of meaninglessness and purposelessness starts to come up. And it's a deadly sort of thing. And I suppose it's just not the young and the old, but it's for all of us. I think people who are in the middle, in the middle between young and old, just have too much to do to stop and think about it. But when you, when you do stop and reflect on it, this, this idea hits you. What am I even doing here? I don't, it seems like the, I have no, this is the midlife crisis kind of stuff, where you realize that all of your, like, hopes and dreams just don't match up with reality, and, and it's coming up short, and you start to wonder what purpose I, why, why am I here? Now this, so, so there's this danger in having no purpose, and here the disciples are, locked in the upper room, because of their fear, and Jesus comes to them, and he gives them peace, and he gives them forgiveness, and he gives them courage to live and to die, but still, they're not going to leave that room unless there's a reason to. 
Unless there's something to do. Unless there's a purpose. And that's what he gives them. Peace be with you, he says. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Now go back to the mountain lion story. Remember the mountain lion outside the door? You're not going anywhere unless you have courage to face the line. But still, even if you have courage to go and face the line, you're still not going to leave unless you have a reason to leave. Unless you have some sort of purpose that would drive you out to face those fears. And Jesus has given this to the disciples and to us, both courage and a reason. You have a purpose in life. Now, we can't just stop there and say you have a purpose, like this is some sort of psychological pep talk. It is good for everybody to have a purpose, but you are a Christian, and this is a Christian sermon, and so you have to know that you have a specific purpose. Just like you have a specific courage. Your courage is the wounds of Jesus. Your courage is the forgiveness of sins. Your courage is the righteousness of faith, and your purpose is also very specific. Your purpose is the giving out of the forgiveness of sins. So that your life is set apart so that you would be forgiven and so that you would forgive. Your life is for the purpose of knowing and making known the death and resurrection of Jesus. So that Jesus sends out the disciples, the apostles, and all of his whole church, sends us out as ambassadors of peace to the world, of God's peace. The wounds of Jesus' peace. That we would carry forth from this place, in our hearts and our mouths, the good news that God died to save sinners. And this, this purpose, this reason for living is something worth living for and it's something worth dying for. It's the reason that the apostles left the upper room. Jesus says, forgive sins. And so they had to go, they were compelled, they were driven to go as far as they could to every place they possibly could to forgive sins to India, to Africa, to, to, to Russia, to Europe. They were traveling all over the place, risking their life and everything else because they had a reason and a purpose and it was the forgiveness of sins. And it's why we leave this place. It's why you get up in the morning. It's why you go and face the fears that you have and all the troubles of life because you have this purpose. To be forgiven and to forgive those around you. I, I, I think this conversation, I think I must have had this conversation that I'm about to tell you, I think I must have had it about 50 times in the last 14 years. Pastor, I don't know why I'm living. I don't know why God keeps me around. I don't know why I'm still here. I'm useless. I, I'm no good for anybody. I make things worse for all the people around me. I, I, it seems like I've got no purpose at all. Why does Jesus still have me here? And this is the answer. Jesus has you here so that he can love you. 
and forgive you all of your sins. And Jesus has you here so that you can love him and the neighbor that he's given you. Peace, Jesus says, to his disciples and to us. Peace I give to you. My peace I give to you, not as the world gives. In this world you will have tribulation, but be of good cheer, because I have overcome the world. He breathed on them. He gave them his Holy Spirit. And he said, whoever sins you forgive, they are forgiven. May the Lord Jesus Christ grant us his Holy Spirit so that we would rejoice in his peace and that your neighbor would rejoice in that same peace. May God grant it for Christ's sake. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Alleluia. Amen. The peace of God that passes all understanding. Guard your heart and your mind through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. We're up on our first break. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Christian. Follow me on Twitter. My name there at Christian. When we come back, sermon number two to end off the week, uh, it'll be my own sermon and it's on well, the topic of idolatry. Stay tuned. Don't want to miss it. We'll be right back. If you want advice on how to have your best life now, you're in the wrong place. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. This is the air I breathe. This is the air I breathe. I've had enough of this sissy, frenzy, turning photo written music you have the audacity to call worship. Men, put this entire girly praise band in the boo box. Let's wheel in the organ and get some real worship music underway. Ye be listening to Pirate Christian Radio. Max Holiday's Birdcage Theatre presents Church Day Select. And in other news, it seems that the inhabitants of Earth are not the only ones subject to economic slumps. Jensen Franklin, through direct revelation from God, has given us information that says that the unemployment rate within God's own army has drastically risen. Take a listen. Angel came and opened the doors and broke the chains. My point to you is simply this. When you don't pray, 
angels become unemployed. The greatest tragedy of prayerlessness is the unemployment of angels. Because when you pray, God gives angels their their orders. When you pray, the spiritual battle in the heavenlies begins to be armed with the prayers of the saints and people binding. And whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. Attention angels, this is uh, the Holy Spirit. I have an announcement regarding the uh, latest downturn in the economy. And I understand that a lot of you have been unemployed lately due to a lack of prayer. And I I wish there was something that I could do about this, but you know, I feel so powerless when it comes to these kind of things. Um, uh, We've uh, created a welfare uh, basket, uh, spiritual relief type of thing. And uh, so those of you who uh, have been hit hard by the latest downturn and are now finding yourselves unemployed, uh, please uh, proceed over to the uh, relief office and uh, we'll see what we can do to help you out. Thank you. All right. All right. Everyone just calm down. Thank you. Now, I know that none of you care to be here, but since we're experiencing a worldwide shortage of prayer, it would behoove you to keep calm and allow us to do our jobs. Gabriel, put your wings down. There's not nearly enough room for that. And Michael, Michael, don't cut in line. I know you're the big cheese around here, but all of us have been affected equally. Wait your turn. Next! What's your name? George. George. Whatever. Where'd you fly in from? South Orange County, California. California? That's frontline enemy territory. How many tours you done down in that kill box? About nine. Oh, you're quite the veteran. That's, uh, that's, uh, that's Rick Warren's territory, right? Yeah, he's got most of the people down there praying for purpose, better sex, other useless junk like that. Those idiots don't even realize they don't need God for such things. I hear you on that one. Now, I know it's not much, but this is what I can give you. It's our premium spiritual relief basket. Thank you. I'll be sure to put this to good use. (laughs) I know you will. Next! What's your name, bub? Harold. Okay. Harold, where are you hailing from? Charlotte, North Carolina. Good gravy. You must really be hurting. Everyone knows that Stephen Furtick's neck of the woods is just filled to bursting with heretical slop. Uh, What are they praying for nowadays? It's the strangest thing. They keep praying to the sun, telling it to stand still. I don't get it. Those morons! Don't they know nothing about astrophysics? If they were to stop the sun, they'd burn half the world to a crisp. Moon rocks have higher IQs than those dingbats. All right, got a relief basket for you. I greatly appreciate the help. (laughs) I know, you're welcome. Next! And your name is... Bob. Bob? I swear, angels these days. All right, Bob, lay it on me. Where you from? Vatican City. Vatican City? (laughs) Are those bozos still praying the dead people and inanimate objects? More than ever. You know, that really frosts my cookies. I mean, seriously. Take Mary, for example. That poor woman has been dead for millennia. She's not answering prayers. Who is the dumb schmuck that thought praying to her would do anything in the first place? Humans! They're so darn gullible sometimes. Anyway, here's your relief basket. 
Sorry. Just getting real tired of that. Happens every time I give someone a basket. Next! Hi, Chris Rosebro here to talk about our longtime featured advertiser, Cheapo Air. Doesn't matter if you're traveling for business reasons or for pleasure. Doesn't matter if you're traveling within the United States or abroad. Cheapo Air is the place for you to save literally hundreds of dollars on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars. Visit our website, fightingforthefaith.com. On the side of our website, you'll see our ad banners. Look at the ad banner for Cheapo Air and look on it. There's a promo code. Write the promo code down, click on the ad banner, and then book your travel at the Cheapo Air website, and you'll have the opportunity to enter that promo code for additional savings. Again, fightingforthefaith.com. Write down the promo code, click on the ad banner, and save money on your airfare, hotel rooms, and rental cars today. Oi, Captain! We got ourselves a heretic! (laughs) And exactly how do ye know that she be a heretic? She be endorsing the health and wealth heresy. Does he be speaking the truth? Jesus died to make us rich. (laughs) And what exactly do we do with heretics? Oh, we throw them in the boo box. No, no, no. We preach the gospel to them. What if, um, the heretic doesn't repent? Then we throw them in the boo box. <laughs> to err is to heretic. To R is to pirate. Get yourself over to www.piratechristianradio.com forward slash Refermanda and purchase yourself a copy of the game Refermanda and join the fight for the faith today. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor doesn't rightly handle biblical texts. Just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your financial gifts and contributions, in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith 2 into the world. And you can partner with us. Uh, The way you partner with us is by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you will see our three friendly yellow buttons. One says donate. The other says join our crew. The other says become a patron. When you join our crew, you get to pick your rank in our crew. 
And rank is based upon your monthly commitment. Lowest rank is Powder Monkey at $9.95 a month. After that, Gunner's Mate at $24.95 a month. From there, uh, Master Gunner at $49.95 a month. And then Quartermaster, $99.95 a month. Joining our crew is a great way to support us. If you'd like to make a one-time contribution, click on the Donate button. If you'd like to become a patron via Patreon, click on the Become a Patron button. If you'd like to support us the traditional analog way, you can do so. Make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith, and then send it to Post Office Box 13344, Grand Forks, North Dakota, zip code 58208. And let me thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we are doing here without it. All right, here is the second sermon to end the week off with for our long holiday weekend, and it's titled, From Which God Do You Expect Good? It's based upon the Gospel of John, chapter 5, verses 1 to 9. Here we go. The Holy Gospel according to St. John, the fifth chapter. After this, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has a five roof colonnades. And in these lay a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, the paralyzed. And one man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus saw him lying there, knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up, and while I am going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. And he took up and his bed, and he walked. This is the gospel of the Lord. Grace, mercy, and peace to you for the one true God, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. And yet there are not three gods, there is only one. I've decided to take another crack at this gospel text, if you would. John chapter 5. This is a text that has bugged me, bugged me deeply. But everybody knows I'm a Bible nerd. And so as a result of that, we'll kind of dive into this in this way. Archaeology has done us a great favor over the last few years, and we'll explain how that plays into our gospel text. But a little bit of a note before we get started. A little bit of a note. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods. That's the first commandment. No other gods, not a single one. And we human beings are prone to idolatry, the way that uh, zebras are prone to have stripes. Kind of a mess, if you think about it. Now, Luther commenting on this, Luther commenting on the uh, first commandment in the large catechism, here's what he says. He says, you shall regard God alone as your God. And so what does this mean? How is this to be understood? What is it to even have a God? What is a God? Answer, well, a God is to that which we look for all good and in which we find refuge in every time of need. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and to believe in Him with our whole heart. As I have often said, trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. If your faith and trust are right, then your God is the true God. But on the other hand, if your trust is false and wrong then you do not have the true God. For these two belong together, faith and God. That to which your heart clings and entrusts itself is, I say, really your God. So what do you turn to in times of trouble, distress, difficulty, right? When you're 
setting hard for a final. Or maybe your life is falling apart. You know, relationships have broken down. Or maybe you find out that you are suffering from a horrible illness and you're never going to be cured of it. What do you turn to in your time of trouble? That thing which you turn to often turns out to be your God. So the purpose of the first commandment, Luther then says, is to require true faith and confidence of the heart in the one true God. And see, these fly straight to the one true God, and they cling to him alone. So the meaning is this. See to it that you let God alone be your God, and never seek another. In other words, whatever good thing you lack, look to God for it and seek it from him. And whenever you suffer misfortune and distress, and notice that's not an if, it's when that happens to all of us. Whenever you suffer misfortune and distress, you come and you cling to God alone. God says, I am the one who will satisfy you, and I am the one who will help you out of every need, and only let your heart cling to no one else. Peter writes to Christians in this way, in 1 Peter chapter 5, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time God may exalt you, casting all of your anxieties on Him. Why? Because He cares for you. You see, anxieties will come. Anxieties do come. I don't know if you've noticed, life is a little bit challenging. Paying the bills is not always that easy. And then you always have the unexpected thing happen. Your car breaks down, your plumbing gives out, you know, something happens and you have to pay for it and you don't know how you're going to do so. And like I said, relationships break down and other things. So anxieties are going to come. But you cast all of your cares on Christ. Why? Because He cares for you. And He's proven this in the most amazing of ways because God demonstrates His love for us. Even while we were yet sinners, Christ has bled and died for our sins. And all that's preface. We're talking about idolatry today. And in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, we have an instance of idolatry. And we'll do a little comparative work in the Gospel of John, chapter 9. This is going to be a long sermon. Settle in. Grab some popcorn. You're probably going to need it is the best way I can put it. So, in the Gospel of John, chapter 5, our Gospel text, it begins this way. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. Jesus went up to Jerusalem, and now there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda. Bethesda, by the way, in Aramaic means the House of Mercy. What a great name, Bethesda. And it has a five-roof colonnade. Hmm. Hmm. All right. So, a little bit of the historical background. One of the reasons why I have always been dissatisfied with this text is because as you read this text, we're going to find out that Jesus heals this fellow, and we're actually going to look at his response. This fellow was healed by Christ, and this fellow never even says thank you, and instead he turns Jesus into the Pharisaical police for doing the healing. Kind of interesting when you consider that. And as, as, as a result of that, it's always bugged me. And when you read the commentaries and you read the sermons through church history on this particular text, there seems to be two camps. One camp who finds fault with the fellow and the other camp who wants to give him a pass. You know, we shouldn't be too hard on this guy. Let's put the best construction on it. Now enter recent archaeological evidence. We now know what the Pool of Bethesda was. The Pool of Bethesda was a temple, a healing center, to the Greek god Asclepius. Say that ten times fast. All right? Asclepius. 
Now, Asclepius, apparently, according to the Greek pantheon of gods, was the god of medicine and health. And he has a couple of his daughters, you might recognize their names, uh, the goddess Hygieia and the goddess Panacea. Hygieia, that sounds a lot like where we get the word hygiene from. Yeah, that's correct. That's right. Hygieia is where we get the word hygiene from. And panacea, if you're not familiar with what that is, if a panacea is a cure-all. You remember back in the days when people would sell these elixirs, it didn't matter what was ailing you. Did you have gout? Did you have ingrown toenail fungus? Were you suffering from heart failure? No problem. Just drink this elixir. It'll cure everything. That's what a panacea is. And so you kind of get the idea. A little bit of another note here. Snakes were also a key attribute of the Asclepian cult. And you'll, if you take a look at the medical symbol today, any of you studying to be doctors, uh, you'll, you'll note the medical symbol has a stick with a snake wrapped around it. Kind of fascinating if you think of the symbology there. But that's where the Asclepian, yeah, that's actually an Asclepian symbol, which the cult of Asclepius stole that from Moses, by the way from the serpent, the bronze serpent that was hanging in the wilderness. And so you'll note, all of this is kind of coming into play. And a little bit more of a note, we know for a fact, archaeologically, that in this time during the Roman Empire, there were no less than 400 Asclepian cult centers, healing centers, throughout the Roman Empire. It was like a franchise. And, you know... Covered colonnades were a big part of their their way they would do business and stuff like that. In fact, it was such huge, big business that if you had a cold or a flu or you were suffering from anything in the Roman Empire, it was a common thing for you to go to an Asclepion. Now, you come down with a cold today, you go to CVS or you go to Walgreens, you grab yourself some NyQuil or DayQuil or whatever your preferred Theraflu medication is for whatever is ailing you, and... It doesn't involve anything religious. But in the ancient world, if you're sick, you have to go and see the gods. You have to go and talk to the deities. And so here, the Asclepions were big business, a big franchise throughout the ancient world. And they were (laughs) known for some of the more interesting, outrageous claims out there as far as faith healing is concerned. Uh, In one account, there was an Asclepian priest who paraded a fellow forward and said, take a look at this fellow. He was born with only one eye. One eye. But now, but now, take a look. He has two. And he'd open up his eyes. Both eyes. Oh, wow, this is great. In another account, an Asclepian priest paraded a young boy, you know, maybe 10 years old, and claimed that he was suffering from water on the brain and that he had prayed to Asclepius, had paid the proper amount of money. By the way, none of the healings from the Asclepian cult were free. And they guaranteed, they 100% guarantee you would always be healed. And so this child supposedly came with water on the brain. And as the story goes, Asclepian came and visited him in the middle of the night, cut off his head, took his skull, drained it of the water, put it back on his shoulders, and healed him right up. And the kid even is said to have said, take a look, there's no scar, it's great. Yeah, but uh, it's also important to note that uh, ancient historians ascribe dubious activities on the part of the Asclepian cult, and uh, they've noted that one of their common things to do is if you came with 
a fever or a cold or something that they thought you would be healed of, they would welcome you and take your money gladly. And if you showed up with a mortal wound or a a, a physical ailment that they knew wouldn't be healed, uh, they either wouldn't take you or they would put you off in a place where no one would see you. And in some cases, this is not rampant throughout the Roman Empire, but in some cases, the Sclepian healing centers were known to take in people with mortal illnesses, uh, not provide very good hospice care for them, and upon their demise, they wouldn't even bury them. They just stacked them up like cordwood off in a ravine somewhere, and you can just imagine the smell associated with that. The 2nd century Christian apologist Justin Martyr actually talks about uh, his contemporaries and their obsession with Asclepius. In fact, uh, Justin Martyr notes, he says, when the devil brings forward Asclepius as the raiser of the dead and the healer of all diseases, may I not say that in this manner, likewise, he has imitated the prophecies about Christ. Justin Martyr even noted that. And, of course, the famous 2nd century Jewish rabbi Akiva was was asked at one point to try to explain why some people who went to go visit Asclepius came back cured if Asclepius didn't have any power. Akiva's um, answer to this question can be found in the Jerusalem Talmud. All of that being said, a little bit of a note here. Uh, there are people running around the f- landscape today claiming to be faith healers in the name of Jesus, and they are engaging in these same dubious activities. For instance, Benny Hinn. A few years ago, uh, ABC did... A, an investigative report on Benny Hinn, followed him around as he was claiming to heal people in the name of Jesus. Big venues, major events, big bucks, if you think about it. And people were showing up with all kinds of maladies to be healed at these Benny Hinn revivals. And the undercover undercover cameras showed that when somebody showed up in a wheelchair, and it was obvious that they were a paraplegic or a quadriplegic, they were made to go to the back of the venue. And then when it came time for the healing line, when Benny Hinn would wave his jacket and supposedly heal people and stuff like that, the people with these obvious diseases were escorted out of the back of the venue and the door was shut behind them. And they found themselves in the parking lot. And there's video evidence to back this up. You can find it on YouTube. So keep that in mind. So all of that being said... We now know that the Pool of Bethesda, the house of mercy, was a house set up not to receive mercy from the one true God, but mercy from Asclepius, of all things. And now we kind of understand what is going on here. So, in this temple of Asclepius, as you would expect, verse 3 says, there was a multitude of invalids, the blind, the lame, and the paralyzed. This is an Asclepian healing center, and if you have these maladies, Asclepius is the guy to go to. One man who had been an invalid for 38 years was there. And I want you to think about this. Uh, The one definition of insanity is you do the same thing over and over and over and over again and expect a different result. So you'll note this invalid, an invalid for 38 years, has been there a long time, and he has yet to receive any mercy from Asclepius any mercy at all. Of course, he's looking for mercy in all the wrong places. Asclepius, in case you don't know, doesn't exist. His phone hasn't even been hooked up so that he can take phone calls. Try dialing him. You won't get a 
an answer signal or anything like that. You'll just get that weird ringtone. Do-do-do. We're sorry, but the number you're trying to reach has been disconnected. It's no longer in service. Right? Never has been in service. So Jesus sees this fellow lying there. He knew he'd been there for a long time. And he said to him, Do you want to be healed? Knowing where he is, this, this question has a wee bit of a bite to it. It's like Jesus is saying, If you want to be healed, why are you here? Sclepius can't help you. So the sick man answered him. You almost see him saying this in a kind of pathetic voice. Sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred. So apparently the Asclepian cult claimed that you know an angel would come and stir the water. First one in would get healed. And this poor fellow never seemed to figure out how to get in first. Makes you wonder if they had a jacuzzi set up to it. You know, so that, you know, stir the waters to make it look like an angel was doing his thing. And so while I'm going down and other steps in before me, and now Jesus, the one true God in human flesh, has mercy on this fellow at the pool of Bethesda. And he says, get up, take your bed, and walk. And at once the man was healed. He took up his bed, and he walked. It's a great outcome. But we're going to note something here. I love how the next portion of this text says, now that day was the Sabbath. And you can almost hear the soundtrack go dark. Dun, dun, dun. We all know what that means. The Pharisaical police are out, you know, and you don't want to run afoul of these guys. Now, before we continue with our fellow here in Bethesda, let's do a little comparative work in the Gospel of John chapter 9, where we have almost an identical setup. We have a pool of water. We have a person who's been, well, suffering from a physical malady for a very long time. And he also is going to be healed on the Sabbath. And you can see how idolatry will play into the first fellow by comparing it to the second fellow. Similar circumstances. John chapter 9, it says, As Jesus passed by, he saw a man blind from birth. Yeah, that's a pretty long time to be blind. And he's a man, not a kid. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned this man or his parents that he was born blind? And you can almost see Jesus going, Oy vey, yeah, that's some bad theology right there. And you know where that theology came from? The idolaters known as the Pharisees. They invent stuff, make up doctrines. And so apparently, if you're born with a physical malady, oh, it's because you sinned or your parents sinned and God's giving you what you deserve. Sounds more like karma than anything. So... Jesus answered, listen, it it was not that this man sinned or his parents. The reason he was born blind was so that the works of God might be displayed in him. And you almost see the disciples going, what? Yeah. So he said, we must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. So having said these things, he spit on the ground, made mud with the saliva, and then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, you go and wash in the pool of Siloam. Siloam means sent. So he went, and he washed, and he came back seeing. You'll notice kind of an allusion to baptism here. Yeah, it should, You should see that. And now, a little bit of a note here. At this point, this fellow has been baptized. He's been given his sight. And you think of that great hymn, Amazing Grace. Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found. But I was blind, and now I see. Yeah, there's a sense in which sin blinds us, but Christ is the light of the world and he gives us our sight back. And so this fellow at this point is like any Christian. 
a baptized believer in Jesus Christ, and even though he has infant faith in Jesus, oh man, this guy is ready for a fight because the fight's going to come to him. You, you associate with Jesus, you even get healed by him, you are in deep kimchi. That's all I got to say. So, the neighbors who had seen him before as a beggar, they were saying, is this not the man who used to sit and beg? Some said, it is. Others said, nah, it just looks like him. But he kept saying, I'm the man. So they said to them, well, then how were your eyes open? Just watch how the villagers here are are acting. So he answered, listen, the man called Jesus. He made some mud, anointed my eyes, and he said to me, go to Siloam and wash. So I went, I washed, I received my sight. And they said to him, where is he? He says, I don't know. So they brought him to the Pharisees. Again, the soundtrack goes dark. Dun, dun, dun. All right, these are idolaters. They've invented their own religion. It isn't even biblical Judaism. So they brought him to the Pharisees, uh, the man who had formerly been blind. And now the day, it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. Seriously, that's, that's a problem. That's not a problem, okay? If Jesus makes mud on the Sabbath, it doesn't matter. He's the you know, King of kings, Lord of lords. He's the Lord of the Sabbath. And I'm pretty sure making mud with spit is not a breaking of the Sabbath. Otherwise, Jesus would have sinned. But the Pharisees, again, they asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, All right, Jesus put mud on my eyes. I washed and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. And others said, Well, how can a man who's a sinner do such signs? And there was division among them. So they again said to the blind man, What do you say about him? Since he opened your eyes, What a hostile question. I mean, this poor fellow woke up on Saturday, you know, did his normal thing, put his clothes on, brushed his teeth, combed his hair, went to work begging, and next thing you know, Jesus comes by and gives him his sight, and now he's on trial. How does this happen? What do you say about him? This is a a dangerous question. He opened your eyes. He said, well, he's a prophet. Get out of here. All right. So the Jews did not believe that he had been blind. This is some kind of a Sclepian trick going on here. You know, something's not right. So they didn't believe that he had been blind or received his sight until they called the parents of the man who received his sight. So they asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How does he now see? Oh, this is dangerous stuff. Dangerous stuff. And you're going to note here, his parents are not willing to suffer any kind of shame or dishonor or persecution for the name of Christ. Their answers are going to be designed to preserve their reputation, designed to preserve their livelihood. They're not about to be suffering for Jesus because some random act of merciful kindness of Jesus happened to befall their son. So, here's what they did. We know that this is our son. This is true. And yes, he was born blind. But how he now sees, we don't know. We we don't know who opened his eyes. Ask him. He's of age. He'll speak for himself. Goodbye. Thanks, Mom. Thanks, Dad. Glad you're there for me through thick and through thin. But here's the reason why they did this, and this is another form of idolatry. Idolatry where you will preserve your own life in any way possible, even denying the truth about God. And they know for a fact it was Jesus who opened the eyes of their son. 
But here's what they did. This is the reason why they did. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed if anyone should confess Jesus to be the Messiah, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So his parents said, he's of age. Ask him. Hmm. So, second time they called the man who had been blind. And this is awesome. This is just awesome. This guy has infant faith. He knows the truth, just enough truth to stand his ground. And he's going to be persecuted like you wouldn't believe. Again, what crime did he commit? He, he was healed by Jesus. So, second time they called the man and had been blind. They said to him, give glory to God. We know this man is a sinner. So he answered, listen, whether he's a sinner, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. Beat that, would you? Can't, can you? No. So they said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? So he said to them, I already told you and you're not listening. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you want to become one of his disciples? (laughs) Awesome answer, right? Yeah. (laughs) So they reviled him. You are his disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses. But as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from. So the man answered him, Wow, this is an amazing thing. You don't even know where he comes from. Yet he opened my eyes. We know that God does not listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Ooh, ooh, that's some good catechesis right there. That's some good theology right there. And then he even knows a little bit about his Bible. It says, Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. And now here comes his statement of faith. If this man were not from God, he can do nothing. Yeah. Now that's awesome. Now, he's going to pay dearly for this. So here comes... Nice ad hominem attack. It's almost an SJW tactic here. So they answered him, You were born in utter sin and you would teach us. So they excommunicated him. They cast him out. Wow. What a great day. Right? And then here's the thing. Note this then. Up to this point, every single penitent, baptized believer in Jesus Christ is identical to this guy. We have been given our sight back by God, regenerated in the waters of baptism, forgiven of our sins and given the gift of faith. And even we too, as infants as we are, are able to stand our ground knowing that Christ has healed us, that Christ has forgiven us, that Christ has blessed us. And we have yet to see Jesus face to face. We've never seen him. And so this fellow hasn't seen the one who has given his sight back But Jesus finds him, and he heard that they had cast him out, that they had excommunicated him. So he, having found him, he said to him, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, Sir, who is he? So that I might believe in him. And Jesus says, You have seen him. He is the one who is speaking to you. Beautiful, beautiful picture. And So note the mercy and the kindness of Christ. And there is a day coming for all who are in Christ when they will see Him face to face as well. And it will be this kind. It will be this merciful. It will be this awesome. Because He's returning in glory to judge the living and the dead. You and me. All. But all of that being said, you'll note that the touch points, there's a similar track here. Fellow who's been physically ill with a very obvious disease, malady for many, many, many years. Christ heals on the Sabbath 
The Pharisees show up and immediately offer persecution. One has faith. And he receives a blessing from Christ. And listen to what this fellow then does. He is the one who is speaking to you. And this blind man, formerly blind man, said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped Jesus. Now do the comparative work. Come back to our gospel text in the Gospel of John chapter 5, and we can see what happened. So the Jews said to the man who had been healed at the pool of Bethesda, it's the Sabbath, it's not lawful for you to take up your bed, a rule they invented, not one that God invented. And you'll note that like the blind man's parents, he's not about to suffer dishonor or persecution for the name of Christ. So he deflects, shifts blame. So, and he says, hey, listen, the man who healed me, that's the man who said to me, take up your bed and walk. So they asked him, who is the man who said to you, take up your bed and walk? Now they've got to file an official pharisaical police report. There's been a crime committed. So now the man who had been healed, he did not know who it was. Jesus had withdrawn, and there was a crowd in that place. So afterwards, Jesus found him, just like he found the, blind, the formerly blind man. Jesus found him in the temple. But here's what he says to him. See, you are well. Sin no more that nothing worse might happen to you. Jesus found him expecting mercy from the god Asclepius, a false god. Jesus found this fellow an idolater. And although he did nothing to deserve a healing and had no faith in Christ whatsoever... Jesus gave him the mercy that he was looking for. And Jesus calls him to repent of his sin. To repent of his idolatry. Hmm. Who of us is not tempted by idolatry? All of us are. You're thinking, well, I don't worship Zeus or Asclepius or even Panacea or Hygieia, although I brush my teeth. Yeah, Listen, Scripture's clear. Paul writes in Philippians, The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. Well, I have. I prayed to Him, and He hasn't healed me. I prayed to Him, and I still don't have any money in my bank account. I prayed to Him, and she never came back to me. I prayed to God, and He never came back to me. I prayed to God, and my boss is still a jerk. Well, when did Jesus promise that your boss wouldn't be a jerk? So, then what happens when things don't go your way? Well, you turn to all kinds of other things rather than the one true God. You might turn to human achievements, intellect, science, technology, or something like that. Maybe the God you worship is the God of random chance. The God of random chance is the one who apparently created evolution, right? And you trust that there is no God, so it's pretty much anything goes. And you, of course, YOLO, you only live once, so make sure you live life to the fullest, right? Or maybe uh, you turn to human goodness or religious devotion. I assure all of you people here at Kongsvinger, even if you've been attending regularly, week after week after week, you cannot take your weekly attendance and bargain with God for it. Listen, God! You have to heal me. I've been to Kongsvinger 12 weeks in a row. It it don't work that way at all. How about money and possessions? (laughs) 
I'll solve my own problem with my money. Worship my possessions. Or you might even turn to something a little bit less expensive, but still costly as far as your eternal soul is concerned. You could turn to things such as food, drink, sex, sports, entertainment. You might even turn to your own family and worship them. The thing that you turn to in your time of trouble is the thing that is your God. So when things don't go your way, do you disappear in a multi-day-long Netflix binge watching episode after episode after episode of Stranger Things? It's a, good, it's a great show, I'm saying. You know. In fact, you'll note that food is a good thing. Drink's a great thing. Sports, entertainment, there's nothing wrong with them on their face. And even your family and friends, these are great gifts from God. But when they become your God, well, then you're trusting in these things rather than your Creator. And you're confusing the creation and God Himself with His creation. And thus, you're breaking not only the first commandment, you end up breaking a whole bunch of other ones along the way as well. And note this, Christ truly cares for you And he cares about the conditions and the sufferings and the different things that you are experiencing in this life. This is most certainly true. Matthew 8 says that when Jesus entered Peter's house, he saw his mother-in-law lying sick with a fever. That's right, the first pope had a mother-in-law. That means he was married. Yeah, I said that out loud, sorry. So, Jesus touched her hand. And the fever left her. She rose and began to serve. And we find out that that evening they brought to Jesus many who were oppressed by demons. He cast out the spirits with a word, healed all those who were sick. And all of this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah, that he took our illnesses and he bore our diseases. He didn't only just take our illnesses and our diseases. He also took our iniquity. He also took our sin, our guilt, our shame. And he died in your place and my place on the cross so that not only can we be forgiven, but also that we would have a hope of eternal life. And so note here, although the song talks about I never promised you a rose garden, it's another great song, but I'm showing my age. God never promised us in this life that everything was going to go great or hunky-dunky. In fact, he promised us in this life suffering, difficulties, distress, and anxieties. That's the nature of life under the curse, which we brought on ourselves because of our rebellion against God. But Peter writes to us in 1 Peter chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Now, that term born again, boy, that's an abused term. But note this, every one of us who is in Christ has been regenerated. We truly have been born anew, born from above, born again. And we also still have our sinful nature to contend with. But God has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, an inheritance that is kept in heaven for you. In other words, you're going to suffer now. Eventually, you're going to die. That's the way of things here. But don't worry. We have a living hope of an imperishable inheritance that God is keeping for us. In fact, keeping for us in heaven. And you yourselves are being guarded through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Not now. So, in this, then, you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, and boy, it does seem necessary, doesn't it? You have been grieved by various trials. 
so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, is tested by fire, that your faith may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus. Though you have not seen Him, you love Him. None of us have seen Him, and yet we love Him. Though you do not see Him now, you believe in Him, and you rejoice with a joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, and you will obtain the outcome of your faith. And the outcome of your faith is not perfect health, wealth, or great things happening to you in the here and the now. No, the, the outcome of our faith is the salvation of our souls when Christ appears. So the best way I can tell you this is to repent of your idolatry. And you'll note, when Jesus confronted this fellow and said to him, see your well, sin no more so that nothing worse might happen to you, rather than look Jesus in the eye and say, Lord, I am sorry that you found me in the temple of Asclepius. I was seeking for mercy from a false god, but truly you are the Son of God. Forgive me for my idolatry and turning to a false god to give me what only you can give me. Instead of doing that and worshiping Jesus and believing in Jesus the way the man who was born blind did, this fellow at the pool of Bethesda says, well, he went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who healed him. He turned Jesus into the police. He's the guy. He's the one. He's the guilty one. Get him. And so this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. First commandment, when you break it, you break them all. This is most certainly true. And this is sobering then for us. What do you turn to in your time of trouble and distress? To Christ? To a bottle? A bottle of booze? A bottle of prescription meds? You know, something you could buy on the street illegally? Food, sex, entertainment? a good book, what do you turn to? That's your God. So repent. Repent. Cast all your anxieties on Christ. He is the one who cares for you. He is truly your God. And the good news is that He has bled and died even for your idolatry so that you can be forgiven in Him. In the name of Jesus, amen. Amen. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you could subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash Pirate Christian. Follow me on Twitter, my name there, at Pirate Christian. Until next week, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.